0: The following content may contain graphic depictions of actual crimes that took place. Listener discretion advised. Hello and welcome to another episode of Love Thy Neighbor, Condos, Crimes, and Ramifications. Episode 4, A Question of Theft. In 2003, a property manager named Robert Koger filled out a Fidelity Bond application with CNA, an insurance carrier. Question 5 of the crime application read as follows. Are bank accounts reconciled by someone not authorized to deposit or withdraw therefrom? Robert answered, yes. And that's how it started. A simple yes or no question on a Fidelity Bond application. A question Robert believed he was answering truthfully. At least... That's what he said during trial. Today, on Condos, Crimes, and Ramifications, we'll discuss a new crime for the show, but certainly not a new crime to the world of common interest developments. Embezzlement. Unfortunately, it's a crime that happens all too often. That's not to say that it happens frequently, but with hundreds of thousands of community associations in the country, hundreds of thousands of management company employees and millions of board members in the United States, some money is bound to go missing. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone on the insurance side of common interest developments that hasn't either known of or worked directly with a manager who got caught stealing from a client. Sadly, our office has seen multiple fidelity bond losses over the years. Quick sidebar, the insurance that is designed to reimburse an association should their money be stolen goes by many names. Fidelity bond, crime insurance, employee dishonesty coverage, but they're all the same idea. Now, based on what we've seen, most managers that have committed this kind of crime simply don't know when to stop. Because it's not as if they siphon off a few thousand dollars and then call it quits. That happens too, but generally, they go big. And when they realize nobody's noticed what they've done, they go even bigger. They go back for more, and more and more. One such management company has been accused of stealing millions of dollars from 12 different associations. You can't take that kind of money away and expect nobody to notice. Many years back, a manager in Southern California stole millions from multiple clients. That manager went to jail for quite some time and her actions led to an amendment in the California Civil Code instituting new Fidelity bond insurance requirements. My understanding at the time of this podcast recording is that that manager is now out of jail and has a new property management company. That's right. She went to jail for stealing money from association clients, and she's still managing properties. Why? Because unfortunately, there's no governing body for management companies. There's no license required. Anyone can do it. Getting back to our story, theft happens and eventually the board notices, or the new management company notices. Most times, these stories end with arrests, jail time, and a blurb in the local paper. Sometimes, however, they just end in frustration and pain, with no justice. And very rarely do they end in violent, spectacular fashion. Sadly, such is the story we have for you today. Robert Coger founded Coger Management Group, or KMG, along with his wife. Based on the East Coast, he'd been running it for over 30 years with clients in Maryland, West Virginia, and the District of Columbia. Eventually, his son Jeffrey came aboard as the chief financial officer. Like most management companies, KMG collected dues from various associations which were then deposited into clients' accounts. KMG then withdrew money from those accounts to pay vendors or make other necessary investments on their behalf. Usually dues were collected as checks, but over time, unit owners wanted to pay by credit card. To accommodate this, KMG opened up a separate account for each association. Think of these accounts as sort of financial limbo. Credit card payments went into the transfer account and then once a month, that money was shifted into the client account. In charge of moving money into and out of all transfer accounts was CFO Jeffrey Koger. Jeffrey did not, however, reconcile the client's accounts. A man named Doug Stewart handled that. However, in some instances, when Doug needed help reconciling an account, Jeffrey might assist him. These transfer accounts were created for the client associations in 2001. Now, KMG at the time maintained their own fidelity bond policy with the Chubb Insurance Group at a limit of $1 million. In 2003, Chubb non-renewed all its crime policies, forcing KMG to shop the market for a new one. Robert's insurance agent recommended a policy with Continental Casualty Company, commonly known as CNA. Robert began filling out the application, and when he came to question number five, Are bank accounts reconciled by someone not authorized to deposit or withdraw therefrom? Robert put, yes. CNA issued the policy. It had a $1 million limit and a $10,000 deductible. The policy was renewed in 2004 and continued through May of 2007. But in 2006, Robert made a shocking discovery. Over the last three years, his son, Jeffrey, had embezzled over $800,000 from various HOA transfer accounts. Those were the accounts that held the association dues that had paid by credit card. How did Jeffrey get away with stealing so much money over a long time period? Simple, Jeffrey was the only person authorized to oversee the transfer accounts. He reconciled them while also having the power to deposit and withdraw from them. We can only imagine what Robert must have felt when he discovered his son's dishonesty. But we don't have to imagine what he did about it. He called Fairfax City Police and he reported his son's crimes. The next thing Robert did was file a fidelity bond claim with CNA. But the more CNA learned about the crime, the more they felt compelled not only to not pay the claim, but to rescind the policy in its entirety, which is exactly what they did. What did Robert do? He sued CNA to enforce the policy. That's right. Robert sued the insurance company that refused to pay a million dollars to cover money stolen by his own son. The case hinged on Robert's answer to question number five. The way CNA saw it, Jeffrey Coger had dual authority to both reconcile and deposit or withdraw from both transfer accounts and client accounts. Had Robert answered no? the policy never would have been issued. But he answered yes. So here's what it boiled down to. Did Robert Coger knowingly give a false answer to question number five or not? Robert argued that he did not, because he believed it referred to clients' accounts and not transfer accounts. CNA countered that even if that were true, the answer still should have been no, because his son Jeffrey was involved in reconciling clients' accounts as well. He oversaw Doug Stewart's work. And in fact, Jeffrey reconciled three clients' accounts on his own while having the authority to make withdrawals from them. Robert did have one thing going for him during trial. He wasn't the only one who misunderstood question number five. KMG's insurance agent, Tom Welch, the man who recommended CNA in the first place, testified that two other management clients of his also read question number five to be asking about how client accounts were handled, but not their own. Remember, these transfer accounts were technically KMG accounts. But this argument wasn't enough to justify the fact that Jeffrey Koger reconciled three clients' accounts on his own. So even if you took the transfer accounts out of the equation entirely, Robert still should have answered no. Now, during trial, Robert testified that he didn't know Jeffrey reconciled these three clients' accounts. He did, however, acknowledge that he knew Jeffrey oversaw the employees who did reconcile them, including Doug Stewart. And whenever problems arose, it fell to Jeffrey to work those problems out. This was enough to prove CNA's case. Robert knowingly gave false information with regards to question number five. The policy was rescinded per the court's order. While KMG fought CNA over a crime policy, Jeffrey Koger stood trial for the crimes he had committed. There wasn't much information on Jeffrey Koger available, but the little we did find was very revealing. Reportedly, Jeffrey suffered from bipolar disorder, alcoholism, bulimia, and borderline personality disorder. Any one of those by themselves is a monumental challenge. To make matters worse, Jeffrey wasn't seeking help for any of these conditions. A forensic psychologist, Anita Boss, said during Jeffrey's second trial, no one had any idea of the depths of his emotional problems because emotional issues weren't discussed in that family. His mental state was in a severe downward spiral in the six months preceding this event. That's right, Jeffrey's second trial. This event, Anita referred to, it wasn't the embezzlement. We'll get to that in a moment. The investigation into Jeffrey's theft began in 2007. It revealed stolen funds totaling not $800,000 as Robert initially discovered, but $3 million. Jeffrey invested some of the money into a fitness center and a restaurant. He also purchased a Corvette and a house in New Mexico. The investigation also reveals Jeffrey owed more than $775,000 in federal taxes. Subsequently, tax evasion was added to his charges. In the months following Jeffrey's arrest, he filed for bankruptcy and separated from his wife. KMG also filed for bankruptcy in 2007. All alone, estranged from his family, suffering from several untreated psychological disorders and staring down the barrel of some serious white-collar prison time, Jeffrey Koger spent the evening of February 2nd, 2008, getting absolutely plastered. In his drunken haze, Jeffrey drove his Jeep Cherokee into the town of Alexandria. Around 3 a.m., he got out and walked up to a taxi cab stopped at a light, which was driven by a man named Baraket Tweld. Without warning, Jeffrey drew a revolver and shot Barraquette in the face, shoulder, and chest. Jeffrey didn't know the man, he was simply there. Now, while this was happening, another man named Scott Duke was headed south on I-95. He thought he was following a friend of his in the car ahead of him, but in reality, that car was being driven by a stranger, Najib Gerdak. Najib noticed the car following him and, concerned, drove directly to the Franconia police station. Scott pulled in behind him, only to realize then his error. Najib suspected Scott of drinking and urged him to call a friend to come pick him up. Scott agreed and got on the phone. While on the phone, a third car pulled into the police station, a taxi cab, driven by a man named Ayman Siril-Khatim, he too feared he was being followed. And he was by Jeffrey Coger. Once at the station, Jeffrey began ramming Iman's taxi with his SUV. Now here's where things get really weird. Najib, who'd been accidentally followed by Scott Duke, ran into the police station to seek help. What he found was a woman behind the desk, feet up, eyes closed, apparently asleep. When he asked her for help, she reportedly told Najib to go back outside and tell the taxi driver to call his own dispatch for help. Meanwhile, outside, Iman drove off in his taxi, but Jeffrey stayed, exiting his vehicle, still armed. He shot Scott Duke in the chest, who was on the phone with his friend asking for a ride. The friend heard the gunshots and raced to the Franconia police station, only to be pulled over by state trooper Jonathan Groner. The friend explained what was going on, and the two raced to the station. At this point, Najib emerged from the police station to find Scott bleeding out. Najib went to assist him, only to be shot five times himself. Bullets struck him in the shoulder, spine, colon, and groin. If you think this is where that sleepy officer finally came out and earned her paycheck, think again. Turns out, she wasn't an officer at all, just a civilian working the night shift a severely injured Najib called 911 using his own cell phone. At some point, Jeffrey got back in his car and fled the scene. His erratic driving caught the attention of several motorists who called it in, and eventually, state trooper Jonathan Groner was on Jeffrey's tail, pursuing him at 80 miles per hour through city streets. Eventually, Jeffrey spun out and crashed into a traffic pole. Groner was joined by three Metro Transit officers as Jeffrey exited his SUV, armed now with a double-barreled shotgun. Groner repeatedly commanded him to drop the gun, but Jeffrey didn't listen. Instead, he took aim at one of the Metro cars and blasted away, blowing out the front tire. Some of the buckshot hit two of the officers. They returned fire, striking Jeffrey once, which caused him to finally surrender. Two more revolvers and ammunition were found inside of Jeffrey's car, and a search of his property showed he'd been doing some target practice with the shotgun in the yard. What's more, bullet holes from a handgun riddled the interior of his home. Miraculously, no one was killed during Jeffrey Cogar's shooting spree, but that doesn't mean lives weren't ruined. Baraket 12, Jeffrey's first victim, was left with $170,000 in medical bills and long-term physical damage. Scott Duke, victim number two, still has a bullet lodged in his sternum. While present at Jeffrey's sentencing hearing, he said, having to look at the person who tried to take your life, never knowing you, is kind of hard. Of that night, he said, I thought of my family and them getting a call saying, your son was shot in the chest. Najib Gurdak was a hairstylist and bodybuilder before the shooting. He said, There's not a moment it doesn't affect me. I have to look at the holes in my body all the time, so you always remember. I used to be able to bench a house. Now I can barely carry my book bag. That night, as he bled out on the ground with Scott Duke next to him, Najib also thought of his parents. No one should have the right to take your life but God, he said. I think Mr. Kroger thought he was God that night. Casey Lingan, the county prosecutor, said, the emotional effects struck as deep as the bullets that struck their bodies and also derailed the dreams of these families forever. The crimes prove he's capable of murdering people, not just one, but six. That's a person who can't be allowed out in society. So what did Jeffrey Kroger have to say about all this? Allegedly, he has no recollection of the events whatsoever. On the witness stand, he said, I've learned piecemeal over the past year of what happened, and I'm horrified. I'm extremely sorry, and if I could take it all back, I would. I feel horrible. The pain I caused is remarkable. During a cross-examination, Prosecutor Lingen said, So you don't remember? No, Jeffrey said. So you don't have to live with the memory of lying in your own blood for the rest of your life, asked Lingen. Jeffrey said, no, I don't. Jeffrey entered Alford pleas on all charges. An Alford plea does not admit guilt, but acknowledges there's enough evidence to convict. In November of 2008, Jeffrey Koger did plead guilty to wire fraud and tax evasion and received a sentence of 66 months. In June 2009, He received 66 years for three counts of attempted capital murder of a police officer, three counts of aggravated malicious wounding, and two counts of using a firearm during a felony. In 2010, Najib Gurdak brought his suit against Fairfax County, asking for $10 million. His argument? If that sleepy civilian employee had simply gotten up and done something, he would have avoided five life-shattering bullets. Were so many lives destroyed all over a question on an insurance application? Certainly not. Jeffrey did what he did because of a host of illnesses and disorders that went untreated. If you don't know already, please make sure that your community has the proper financial checks and balances in place to prevent someone from stealing your association's money. The requirement by insurance carriers for those checks and balances is done not only to protect the carrier, but also to protect the association. And while Robert Coger did indeed answer the insurance application question incorrectly, perhaps the real question Robert should have answered truthfully was, does my son need help? And then he should have acted.